Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. The Welsh writer and scholar Angela V. John calls herself a biographical historian. She considers the time in which her subject lived crucial to the story. The precision with which she constructs her books is evident in her War, Journalism, and the Shaping of the 20th Century, The Life and Times of Henry W. Nevinson. This book was initially published in 2006, and now it's being reissued. Why is that happening now? I'd written quite a lot more books in between. And this was the one book that I'd written that had never really been paperbacked. And I've worked with various publishers over the years. And the publisher that I did this book with initially has now been taken over by Bloomsbury, which is a much bigger and more prestigious publisher in a sense. And uh, it seemed sensible to see if they'd be interested in paperbacking it. So that's really why it's just a basic reason for trying to include it amongst my biographies and also since then I've written a biography of his second wife of Henry Nevins' yes. second wife which meant that I was approaching some of the same issues from a different angle which actually makes both of them much more interesting I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about Evelyn Sharp in a minute, but let's first start for people who probably aren't aware, as I was not, of about Henry Nevison. What, tell us first who he was, and then let's talk about what drew you to the subject, because you've written about such a wide variety of people in your career. Well, Henry Nevinson was an Englishman. He lived from 1856 to 1941, and he was well, very well known in his day, but has now, I think, been much more, well, he was really more forgotten from the second half of the 20th century onwards. But in his heyday, in the late Victorian period, the Edwardian years, and in the 20s, 30s, he died in 1941, he was renowned as the war correspondent or one of the leading war correspondents in Britain. In fact, he was nicknamed the King of Correspondents at a mm. time when newspapers were all important. He yes. was somebody who wrote, who reported back from scenes of conflict. He appeared fearless. He went into the thick of battle, in effect. Um, he didn't sit in a hotel sort of trying to put things together. He literally went out onto the battlefield. And in fact, at Gallipoli during the First World War, he actually got wounded. He was involved in the South African wars. He was in, his first war was a little known war between Greece and Turkey. He was also in Russia at the time of the 1905, the kind of early revolution. He was in India watching unrest and nearly got thrown out of the country because he was really quite radical in his beliefs. He was in Angola exposing slavery there, one of the most amazing kind of and intrepid journeys that he ever made. He was you know, you name it, he was there. And 
he was reporting from the Western Front during the First World War. So he mm. was a very famous war correspondent, but he was also somebody who really believed in fighting for social justice. Mm -hmm. He was supportive of women's suffrage. Whenever there was a cause to be fought, he was there. And in fact, he said that there was no such thing as a lost cause. They were just causes waiting to be won. He was, he was a man of action, but also somebody who wrote wonderful literature, wonderful prose. He wrote some poems as well, but he, he did write exquisite prose and his middles, as they were known in newspapers, which were really think pieces, sort of belle lettre, um, which kind of wandered far and wide, sometimes stayed on a particular issue or subject, but they were really exquisite, those middles. And so, Unlike some of his contemporaries, he was well-versed in literature and a man really of the pen as well as the sword. So all of that explains his background, but why of all the subjects that you could choose, what drew you specifically to him? I understand such a compelling figure, um, but why, when you wrote this book, were you drawn to him? Well, I mean, it's a good question because in some ways it appears a bit perverse because most of what I've written about over the years has been women's history. Right. Um, and here I was writing about a kind of insistently male profession um, at the time and somebody who kind of epitomised some of the ways in which um, rather masculine military, rather masculine military world operated. Basically, I think it was for a number of reasons. One was that I'd already written a couple of biographies, one of a Welsh woman called Lady Charlotte. Well, she wasn't actually Welsh, but she spent most of her life in Wales and mm -hmm. learned Welsh and wrote an amazing journal, which she wrote for about an hour a day. I'd also written a biography of Elizabeth Robbins, who was an American-born actress, writer, suffragette, um, somebody who spent most of her adult life in Britain, but lived a long life and kept a diary for almost all her life. So I got hooked on diaries. And mm. Henry Nevinson was somebody that Elizabeth Robbins knew. He seemed to have an amazing effect on women. They really were attracted to him. And Elizabeth Robbins was somebody who he was very fond of. And they never actually had a relationship, but nevertheless, she knew him quite well, and she talks about him in her diary. And so that alerted me for a start. And I discovered that he kept a diary for many, many years and that it was a voluminous, really thoughtful diary. And the other thing was that I just edited a collection of essays on men's support for women's suffrage. I'd headed mm -hmm. up a project at my university about that. And it was a sort of whole research area that we were looking at. And I edited the book and I wrote a chapter in it on seven literary men who supported women's suffrage because there were men's league. There was a men's league for women's suffrage. There was a political men's political union, which was very like the militant suffragettes in Britain. And Henry was in the thick of that. So he was the, the president of that organization. So that fascinated me. And I was interested in why and how some men supported the movement. There were many others who were dead against it. So he kind of intrigued me in a sense. 
and knowing that there were these amazing journals. And what I originally thought I would do was something that was incredibly ambitious and a bit over ambitious. It was to write a biography of Henry Nevinson and both of his wives. I had what I had in mind was a kind of triptych where when you have one of those paintings that has three panels, in the front is the central figure. And on either side, you've got two other figures. But if you turn it around on the back, the central figure is missing and you only have the two on either side. And I thought that was quite an interesting concept to play around with. So my original plan was to write this book about all three. I discovered that Evelyn Sharp's diaries, although she didn't write anything like as much as, as Henry, were also in the Bodleian Library. And I managed to get a visiting charter fellowship for a year to work at Oxford University in the Bodleian. However, when it came to Henry's first wife, Margaret, who really has a rather rotten time because Hen it, they didn't, Henry and Margaret really fell out very early on. He introduces her really in his diary and you feel you don't really get her side of things, which is what I wanted to unearth. But the trouble was, I found there really wasn't enough primary material in the way that Henry would have ended up dominating everything because his diary and, you know, more than 30 single authored books and thousands of pieces of journalism. That really was such a weighty kind of amount of material. Whereas with Margaret, although she wrote a few books, and she was active in the women's suffrage movement and she was a poor law guardian and various things. There's far less, very little in terms of her personal thoughts and her side of things. So in the end, I ended up writing an essay about the whole Nevinson family because their son was a famous war artist, C.R.W. Nevinson. So I wrote um, an essay in an American publication and that was all about the family. And so I wrote a piece about the entire family. But I also recently, in a book called Rocking the Boat, about Welsh women who championed equality and looking at different forms of writing biography, I wrote an essay about Margaret. So I feel I had something about her and then Evelyn got her own book. So my original conception never quite came off, but I think had I done it, it would have rather skewed things in some ways towards Henry. And I really wanted to hear each of the voices. So I think that's really why I took on the whole thing initially with a more ambitious ideal in mind. I think um, that's really helpful for people who would be listening to this uh, podcast, because all of us, when we approach our subjects, are struggling with, first you get the subject, that's the first hard part, is falling in love with something enough to spend your life immersing, part of your life immersing in their life. And then the second part is how do we construct that story? So I was very intrigued to see that you'd initially set out to write a book about two people and wound up, of course, those people, all three people are in this book that you've written, but you needed, you felt the need to restructure and do what you did with the two separate volumes. So I think that's very instructive. If we could talk for a minute about how you went about that, you know, the Bodleian is a famous perhaps the most famous library in the world, a research library, but there are many sources that you cite 
in your acknowledgments. Again, for keeping in mind the audience of people who might be sitting down and attacking a subject that does have quite a lot of associated primary research. How did you make sense of all of it? And how did you, what was your approach? You had that year in the library. Most people don't have a year like that. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk a little bit about that methodology. Yes, I, I mean, I think it is interesting and it's easy, of course, after the event to make it sound as though it was seamless and, right. and you know, involved a vast amount of work, you know, manageable. And of course, at the time, there were moments when I felt pretty overwhelmed. And I think it's only fair to kind of say that. It was a wonderful year in many, many ways, because as you rightly say, I had the privilege of being able to not have to teach for a year, but also to actually immerse myself and kind of live that material. And and that, you know, that's incredibly helpful. And I do appreciate that, that it's not always possible. But at the same time, I also did find it was pretty daunting because not only is you know there's the enormous amount of journalism that he produced and sometimes some of his articles would be unsigned but of course after a short while you really get to recognize the style and you know what he's doing and because the journals these diaries are just so detailed you have a marvelous opportunity to look at the kind of more personal side I'm quite critical of diaries in one respect, because although they are the most brilliant source, a kind of ego document in a way, of course, they tend to point up what the writer chooses to select. And obviously, they are always at the absolute centre of things. And I think also somebody who keeps a journal who is also a writer even if they don't admit it, probably has one eye on the possibility that that (laughs) diary will later be used. I think also there's the fact as well that if they choose not to destroy it or not to give instructions about it not being read, then they probably are fairly happy with that notion. And at the same time, I think a lot of writers are honing their style in their diaries. Nevertheless, it is possible sometimes, I think, if you're reading a diary every day for weeks and months on end, you actually get to see when they're really rattled about something, when something really worries them. I know that when I'd written Charlotte Guest's diary, I knew and I felt really prurient the day on which her husband would die. She didn't. And it was a weird feeling reading that and coming closer and closer to the day that he would die. But what I noticed was that although she was normally very much in charge, her style was magnificent. As she got closer to the time when he would die, and he, you know, he'd been quite ill, her style petrified, and there'd be lots of dashes and Her sentences were not as beautifully written as they were otherwise. Mm. And so I think, you know, reading diaries, you have to very much read between the lines. But nevertheless, that's a wonderful source. And with Henry, one of the amazing things was that, again, I was lucky in that most biographers don't necessarily have the opportunity to look at differing versions of whatever it is they're writing about. When Henry was in South Africa during the Anglo-Boer Wars or the South African Wars as they're now known, he was caught up in the siege of Ladysmith, 
which for a journalist was wonderful, not quite so good in the sense that he got seriously ill and also quite a lot of the time they couldn't obviously go anywhere. Nevertheless, it did enable him to have to get a lot of copy in the long run. So what you have is, just for example, from this, you have Henry's diary, you have the letters that he sent back to his newspaper, mm. to, the, to the Daily Chronicle. You have a book that he wrote about the subject. You have short stories that he wrote about that period. You have letters that he wrote people. So you have a whole multitude of differing ways in which he expresses himself about basically the same event and contradicts himself because we all contradict ourselves all the time. Of um, course. And, you know, it, in that sense, it's a very human sort of way of trying to pick up somebody's life, even though he was writing it a very long time ago. And I, I tend to think that there's a way in which reading all these different accounts, we can get that little bit closer, but we'll never really, I mean, I would not, you know, I don't have Doctor Who's time machine. I don't, I'm not in a position to really definitively say anything. But of course, again, I don't really believe in the definitive biography. I, I think that we all are biased. We put forward our own interpretations, which are heavily laden with our own ways of seeing and doing things. And that people are complex and that I don't want to reduce him to just one kind of cardboard figure. Right. And, and that raises a really great question, too, that goes to your long career as an educator. And I noticed that you said in your bio that you like to work with students who have a mature look at history. I like to consider myself one of them having come late to writing biography and as a student who's almost 60 myself, so uh, in a graduate program. So speaking to somebody like me, not to make this about that, but what is it that you enjoy about conveying these complexities, which you have learned over a lifetime of immersion in other people's ephemera uh, as you construct lives? How do you convey that wisdom to somebody who wants to learn it? It's, it's incredibly complex. Yes, it, yes, it is. And you're absolutely right. I loved working with mature students in particular because they brought so much to the table. It was just wonderful. And watching them kind of grow in confidence and actually just fly was, was always a great joy for me. But yes, trying to convey the essence of complex subjects and, and do all of that, it was, was a challenge. But I think one of the beauties of biography is that it humanizes history. I mean, a lot of people are, and some academics can be quite sniffy about biography and kind of see it as focusing too much on the individual and really, in a sense, not getting the bigger picture. But I think one of the great beauties of it is that it enables us to identify, it enables us to see the kind of every day as well as the great dramas. It also, I think, there's one thing that biography can do that I think very little else can achieve, and that's that it only by having time and distance from your subject 
can you, in a sense, write a historical biography? But what it then enables is a rounder picture than you would otherwise have, because you can only really put the life together and see it properly when mm. you actually are that little bit further away from it. So you can see how somebody like Henry Nevinson fits into a particular period, why some of the labels that he was given at the time were or were not appropriate, but you can do that because you've got that little bit of distance. And so it enables us to understand historical change rather better. And one of the things that was great about doing this biography in particular was that I think it enables a kind of wider understanding and, and hence my title, because what you're doing is looking at the shaping of a century from the second half of the 19th century, because he was quintessentially Victorian in many respects. But you're looking at how an individual makes sense of his life and a career, but over time. So you are inserting him back into his own period. And I think it helps us to understand that historical period much better than we right. would otherwise in a more formal uh, way of looking at history that is all about dates and chronology and, and really in a sense looks just looks at periods. Um, I think it's better to look at the individual and how their life helps to us to understand that period. Absolutely. And that's why you call yourself a biographical historian. Wow. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. That's Angela V. John, author of the newly released War, Journalism, and the Shaping of the 20th Century, The Life and Times of Henry W. Nevinson. Out from Bloomsbury, we spoke via Zoom. You can hear more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles, California. Alani Hodge created our theme music. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>